You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm delighted to welcome Professor Alma Harris. Alma is internationally known for her research and writing on educational leadership, education policy, and school improvement. She began her career as a secondary school teacher in South Wales and is currently Professor of Education Policy and School Improvement at the University of Swansea, as well as Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences, Fellow of the Learned Society of Wales, Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and Member of the International Council of Education Advisors to Scotland's First Minister and Deputy First Minister. She's also held professorial positions at the University of Warwick, University College London, University of Malaya, and the University of Bath. She's been a senior policy advisor to the Welsh Government and is past president of ICSI, the International Congress for School Effectiveness and Improvement. Welcome, Alma. Thank you, Deborah. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. So we'll we'll start the conversation. And I was thinking, you know, you've immersed yourself in education leadership really for a, a long time in your career. And I thought we might start by you talking about why? Why is it that that field is something that's so important for us to think about in education? Yes, that's a great that's a great question. And I think the short answer is because we know the difference that uh, leadership makes to organisational performance and organisational change. And it's not just in the field of education; it's in the field of business and sports and health. You know, it's it's very clear the difference that good leadership makes. And by leadership, I don't necessarily mean the leader. I'm talking about leadership as as practice. And in a school setting, I see leadership as being distributed and that it can be, um, that there is teacher leadership as, as well as the formal leadership within the organization. So my interest really comes from the fact that a long time ago, uh, after I was a school teacher, I worked in business development and I, I watched the way in which different enterprises succeeded or failed. And it largely came down to the the personality and the inspiration of the leader of those particular enterprises. So I guess that's really what's uh, interested me over my career is, is what sort of leadership makes a difference? How does it make a difference? And what sort of leadership preparation development do we need in order to be, you know, to pr- produce the best leaders we possibly can uh, within our schools and in our school systems? Because the, ultimately, as is often quoted and, and, and it is often not attributed to me or to Ken Leithwood or David Hopkins, uh, leadership is second only to the influence of teachers and, and in, in the classroom in terms of its impact. So leadership matters. It matters a great deal. Mm, so apart from the, the teacher's direct impact on students, you've got the leader's impact on their teachers and the students and the, and the school community. And I heard a bit of a tension there between what you said about leading being a practice and a behaviour, but then also that the success of an organisation can be around a leader as well. So how do you see that playing out, the importance of the like a person or the person versus the leadership behaviours of multiple people in an organisation? Yeah, and I think that's where uh, probably misrepresentations of distributed leadership occur. People understand that sometimes as everyone is leading. Well, I don't want everybody leading in my organization, that could cause chaos. What distributed leadership said is that everyone has the potential under the right conditions to lead. 
but that has to be carefully orchestrated by someone who has the vision for that organization, the passion for that organization. Um, so the sense of direction is, is what the leader does, creates a sense of direction. Um, but really what good leaders do is to empower others within the organization, not just to share that sense of direction, but actually to contribute to that sense of direction by, by realizing it through their individual efforts. Because ultimately an organization comes down to individuals. It, it's not the building, it, it's not the, the location, it's about what, what individuals do on a daily basis. And everyone is a leader in some respect because everyone is influenced. So teachers have influence in their classrooms every day. So their leadership, their teacher leadership is, is vitally important. They lead young people, they influence their peers, and ultimately they contribute to the overall organization. So there is a tension there, you're right. But without the combination of a good leader setting the vision and the direction, and then the leadership capacity within that organization to help that be fulfilled, then it's unlikely to happen. So just being a leader doesn't mean that anyone is following you. That's basically what I've learned. Um, you've really got to empower <laughs> others, uh, engage others, and um, respect others in order to, to lead them. But yeah, I mean, We've seen some terrible examples around the world, and I, I won't point at any particular country, but you know, we've seen some terrible examples of leader, leaders, uh, individual leaders, just getting it wrong. And I think you know, they get it wrong because they don't realize that the people that they lead are part of their leadership. That's what good leaders do. They embrace other people, bring them forward, recognizing their skills and abilities. Um, that's what good leaders in schools or any other organization, that's what they do. So there's the setting of the vision, but there's actually that notion of empowerment and that what I'm hearing you say is that good leadership is actually, rather than being about me, the leader, it's about yeah. others, deeply yeah. about others and supporting others and building their capacity so that as a team, as a group of people, the vision is being realized. That, that's right. I mean, I'd say to anyone, if, if you think leadership is about you, don't become a leader because that's the wrong premise to be a leader. Leadership is always about other people. It, you know, I, I like the idea of servant leadership because that's what it is. It, it's hard work and hard graft for other people, whether they're your colleagues or whether they're young people. That's what great leaders do. It isn't about them. It shouldn't be about them. If you think about it, you know, Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, said this, and I think it's, it's really true, that good leaders, when things go wrong, they look in the mirror. You know, what have they done to contribute to this crisis? And when things go right, they look through the window to other people because ultimately it's those other people that have helped them to lift that organisation. I think that's a really good distinction between, you know, what constitutes a great leader compared to a good leader. Mm. And I've heard you use a term that I've always found amusing uh, but true uh, when you talk about adjectival leadership, the idea that you can just put an adjective in front of leadership and you have a new kind, uh, because the field of leadership in general and educational leadership in particular, there's a lot of types of leadership. You just talked about servant leadership. We've talked about distributed yeah. leadership. More recently, you've been writing about this idea of network leadership, kind of a, an evolution maybe of distributed leadership. So what are your thoughts about that, the sort of breadth of, of the field, the 
how helpful are those kind of tags? And then you also talked about that, you know, with distributed leadership, sometimes it becomes a word that people think they know what it means, but they haven't really engaged with the literature around what it really means. So how is it that we might find a way in, especially I'm thinking from a kind of practitioner point of view, uh, we hear these words, we think, oh, yes, I want to know more about leadership, but what's what's a way in and, and how do we sort of sort it all out and decide what we might hang on to? The field is littered with, with different adjectives. Um, some of them are helpful, some of them are not. And I think, you know, with any new book that appears on a bookshelf in an airport, you know, somebody's just grabbed, say, the word courageous and put it in front of leadership or political or, I don't know, moral leadership. You know, you can go on and on and on. But I think the, the real test comes when you ask a very, very simple question as a practitioner. And you should always ask this question as a practitioner. Where is the evidence for that? And if the answer comes back, well, it's only one book or one person's view of the world, um, then I would have some scepticism about that. But if you were to look at the evidence base and say, well, actually, you know, people have written quite a lot about this and a lot of research around this topic, then it's likely to have some legs in terms of being useful to, to practice. Because I think research should be useful to practice. Otherwise, why do it? You know, we're in, we're in a practical field here professional practical field so research has to have traction with the profession or why do it so i think to sort out the confusion and the the many labels for leadership i would ask a simple question you know where, where is the evidence what does it tell us how robust is that evidence and, and really why should i listen to this person about leadership rather than another writer on on the same topic the empirical evidence normally sorts out the wheat from the chaff and it normally directs you to, to really what is substantive leadership work rather than superficial, romanticised books on a bookshelf that tell you how to do it. You know, I did it my way sort of leadership, but it doesn't really capture the complexity and the reality of, say, school leadership, for example. And so distributed leadership is one of those types of leadership that you have spent a lot of time researching, writing about, talking about. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and also maybe that over the years, has your thinking around that changed or has it evolved or is it really still in essence as you originally imagined it? The danger is, of course, that distributed leadership could be just another one of those adjectives. And um, in a way, you have to start from its origins. It doesn't come from, from within the educational sphere. It comes from social psychology and it, it's an idea that learning, cognition can actually be distributed. So the idea that things are shared or spread in an organisation is quite a powerful notion. I think if you extrapolate that to leadership, then the basic premise is that within any organisation, people have influence, people are uh, leading in their various capacities. So leadership is inevitably distributed because schools are very complex places. So if you really, really think that the principal has a handle on every interaction during the day, then you're wildly, you're wildly out of line and mistaken. So it's really about recognising the organisation itself is quite complex and leadership isn't the proviso of just the person with the title. It, it's in the interactions and the practice that happens every day. So I think what it does, to be honest, is it blows out of the water uh, the idea that it is only the former leader who has the leadership capabilities or the leadership portfolio. It, it sort of says the teachers can be leaders, students can be leaders, parents can be leaders. 
So it's, it's really broadening out that notion of leadership and taking us away, I think, quite helpfully from the, the male dominated heroic leader that we, you know, if you want, if you Google leadership right now and you look at images, so many male images come up and they're normally an individual leader. I think what it does is places it, it challenges that notion quite helpfully and it does it from a research perspective. So has my view of distributed leadership changed? Um, I think during COVID times, we saw distributed leadership in action. I, I think that there was no other way to lead than to lead online and to lead remotely. So I think we can, we've proven that distributed leadership is real and that it can, be, it can be functional, it can be helpful. And as we move forward, I think the whole, the whole network agenda, which is you know, really burgeoned out of COVID, it existed before, but I think it's coming to its own because of COVID, is really beginning to test the boundaries of what distributed leadership can do. And also, um, I guess it's, it's various levels of impact, uh, either in, in a network form or in school form. The evidence we have, it's still the case 20 years on uh, that if properly distributed, leadership can have a powerful effect on the organizational performance and organizational change. If you can imagine, and this is what Jim Spillane says, it's an idea that leadership is really stretched within an organization um, beyond the individual leader to the many rather than the few. And again, that's recognizing the potential of individuals to contribute to organizational change. It's not the preserve of one person. And if I was going to say as a leader in a school, okay, I want to do this thing where many people in my school are leading and we're all moving together in the same direction, what might be some, some things people might be doing in that? Is it, is it cultural? Is it conversational? Is it protocols and processes? What's the how of distributed leadership? Yeah, again, great, great question. And the, I think the how of distributed leadership comes down to organisational trust. You know, if, if you're in an organisation where there aren't high degrees of trust, then distributed leadership is, is, it just isn't going to be functional, isn't going to work. If you look at countries where they have a very hierarchical system, uh, an autocratic system, then distributed leadership is unlikely to, to really have a purchase there. The how, I mean, I, I think one way to do it is to have groups of teachers who are researching, inquiring, collaborating on issues that really matter to that school at that moment in time. Uh, so a vibrant research community is, is the first thing. Secondly, we talk a lot about collaboration. Cooperation looks a bit like collaboration, but it's not so meaningful. But I'm talking here about an authentic collaboration. But underneath all of that, there has to be a high degree of trust. So you talked about culture, and I think culture is really, really important. You know, when culture works against you as a leader, you could do very little. So what good leaders do is they create the cultural norms where teachers can be the best teachers that they can be. That's what good leaders in schools do. And remembering, of course, that teachers' working conditions are learners' learning conditions. So the more that we give teachers the opportunity to be autonomous, to be empowered, to, to research, to inquire, to think for themselves and, and to be part of that organisational culture where they're respected and their views are heard, uh, I, I think is, is the basic premise of effective distributed leadership. Ultimately, in most schools where it happens, people don't talk about distributed leadership because it's just the way they do things around here. 
and, and it's the set of cultural norms that make them feel not just trusted and, and valued, but that sense that they can actually influence the direction of the school and, and influence the formal leaders within that organisation. So if people haven't read the literature on distributed leadership, it could sound like it's about uh, delegatory leadership where you, you distribute tasks and different people do them. But actually what you're talking about is creating the conditions for learning and leading for everyone in the organisation and that it's actually about those collaborative cultural norms of trust, being trusted, trusting others and providing support for people to be their best teachers or their best learning selves. That's right. And I think distributed leadership, like all sorts of types of leadership, has been misunderstood. And, and to misunderstand it as delegation, I think, is a problem because that means that you're distributing work to others. Well, that's not at the heart of distributed leadership. It's actually the reverse of that. It's actually saying, Deborah, uh, you know, you, you're brilliant at teaching X. Um, we have a problem with X in our schools. I would like you to lead a group of teachers, maybe in some inquiry or some collaboration or some networking, to really find out ways in which we can address that. So it's recognising that the formal leader doesn't have all the answers, never has all the answers, but reaching out to individuals who, if they haven't got the answers, can find out or do some research or inquiry, I, I think sparks something within an organisation that's, that's actually quite powerful. So you're also honouring and harnessing the expertise of the people in the school. So rather than saying we need some external help here looking for what people are good at within the organisation and then allowing them to lead in that in that area of expertise. Absolutely. I think what I would advocate for is at the policy level, you know, I'd advocate for policy learning, find out what goes, what is done well within your system and try and expand that, not borrowing from other systems who are entirely different contexts and entirely different cultures. And it's the same within the school. You know, there are no bad or good schools. There are just schools. And even within some of the most challenging schools, there's good practice. So the, the test is how do we expand that good practice? How do we share that good practice? And for me, and I wish I, I'd written this quote, but I, I didn't, you know, isolation is the enemy of improvement. And that's really at the heart of what I'm talking about. If teachers work together on things that really matter to them and for their kids, it can be enormously powerful in terms of organisational change and, and improvement. Improvement from within, I think, is, is where we start. Flying in experts seems like a good idea, but they don't understand your context. They don't understand your children. They don't understand your staff. That is deeply cultural and that's where the work really happens, in my view. Mm, improvement from within and then I was thinking as you were talking about the fact that distributing leadership within a school can strengthen that school how does it translate when you with what you've been observing with network leadership where perhaps people are in a network outside of their organization but that there's still that idea of people being better together through collaboration and learning together is the distribution of leadership from people in a similar network but in different places or is it is there a different way to conceptualize that I mean, for me, going forward, I, I think networks are the DNA of school improvement in the future. Because where do we get great ideas from um, that work in practice? Well, we, we get them surely from other professionals. We get them surely from other schools. I mean, you can only get them through collaboration and, and, and networking. So it's really recognizing the power of networks to transfer good ideas innovation and change laterally to other schools. So it's recognizing that 
Yes, you can improve the school from within, but sometimes the ideas about improvement have been tried and tested elsewhere. And that's not borrowing what another school has done. That's taking some of the expertise from another school and, and implanting it, testing it and trying it in your own school. So I like the idea that it's, you know, networks of the DNA of school improvement in the future, because ultimately, let's be honest, ultimately, professionals uh, in the field of education, uh, they know better than policymakers, they know better than researchers, they're in the classroom right now, hopefully, um, and, you know, they are on a daily basis making such a difference to the lives and life chances of young people. If you look at what happened during COVID, teachers were remarkable and remain remarkable in the heavy lifting that they did simply to keep learners learning. So let's give them every single bit of credit. And the school leaders, they did a remarkable job and they continue to do a remarkable job in keeping young people safe, keeping them well, but most importantly, keeping them learning. And you've done a lot of thinking during and post-pandemic. One of the many papers that you've written is the 2020 paper you wrote with Michelle Jones titled School Leadership in Disruptive Times. I think it's been viewed more than 100,000 times. And in it, you write that school leaders cannot emulate the leadership practices they witnessed or enjoyed in a period of stability, continuity and relative calm. Leading in disruptive times means being able to navigate a different course to create new pathways through the disruption. And in the chapter that you wrote with Cecilia Azarin and Michelle Jones for the book that I edited, Future Alternatives for Educational Leadership, you say at the end there that there's a different brand of leadership has emerged during the pandemic that's shared, collaborative, networked and ultimately distributed. And I think I certainly experienced that as a school leader. People sort of leaned in and leaned on and leaned towards one another as a almost a survival or a coping mechanism. And now I think what you're talking about is that there's a chance to build on that momentum and actually use it to propel us forward. What are some of your reflections around how leadership, has it changed forever? Has it changed a bit? What have we learned during the, and maybe, I don't think we're post-pandemic yet, but what are we learning about leading at the moment? I think in a way that COVID has radically changed our view of leadership because we have had to lead in our various ways, in our various capacities, through uncertainty. This pandemic was unprecedented and it it hit like a truck and there was no time to prepare. There was no time to have a plan B. We just had, as you say, lean in and lean on each other. The big message out of COVID is that people need people, basically. And I think that is a message for leadership in the Mm. future, that people need people in order to lead. I think a new paradigm of leadership is emerging, and, and I guess that's what we wrote about in your very wonderful book, which is about the alternatives for leadership. The saddest thing that could happen is if we went back to the future, in a sense, and we, we went back to the old models of leadership. They, they just don't fit any longer. You know, those models were blown up in, in so many ways because the challenges just didn't fit the models. It wasn't about an individual bravely leading forward. It was exactly what you said there, were. It was people leaning in, leaning on. Imperfect leadership is is essentially what happened and is continuing to happen because there are no neat solutions to this. But I think what it's done, I think what COVID has done is it's prepared us for the future challenges um, that inevitably will come. And, And I think we will meet those future challenges collectively, not independently. I think we've realized now the importance of interdependence and the importance of leading collectively rather than individually. I'm thinking about what you talked about in terms of imperfect leadership 
And for a presentation that I did recently, I did a Google search where I wrote in leader and all of the images that came up were white and male and some of them wore capes and some of them were at the top of a mountain yes. and all of, almost all of them wore ties and suits. You know, I thought, am I outdated in my notion that this is still, there's still a masculine individualised notion of leadership and Google image search said no. But I think the other thing about the pandemic is that there's been more vulnerability and humanness yeah. in leadership as well, yeah. uh, whether that's through being in people's homes via being remote or whether it's people sharing things with one another in different kinds of ways or, um, yeah, that sort of notion of vulnerability or imperfection being accepted and sometimes even necessary in leadership. Absolutely. I think leaders are not infallible. Leaders are, out, are human beings first and leaders second. And I think, if anything, we've learned through COVID that leaders should be compassionate towards themselves first and others second, because it's been a really, really tough time for those leading any organisation, but particularly schools, because they see firsthand the impact of this on families and individuals, on the mental health and well-being of young people. I think leaders through COVID recognised in spades that they just can't do it all and, and, and it, it can't be down to them. So I think the reaching out to others, the connecting with others, the taking on expertise from others, leaning on others, actually. Because what, we, what we've realised through COVID is that vulnerability, that we're all vulnerable, that, that no one is impervious to this virus or, or whatever comes next. But we do better when we join ranks and we, we face it collectively and collaboratively. I think we, we've always known that, but I think the models of leadership that we've had uh, have sort of persuaded us in a romantic and distorted way, that this individual is superhuman, or well, they're not. You know, they're vulnerable to, to losses, they're fun, vulnerable to, to pandemics. So therefore we have to have a plan B, and that plan B is the collective leadership within the organization that relies, you know, solely on other people. You know, that is the nature of an organization that works functionally. I think you and others have talked about the the problems because of COVID, things like inequity. Some people talk about some, things like learning loss, some of the issues that and discrepancies that have come up through the pandemic. And as you say, often things that were there before but have been brought into greater relief. But I think the other thing that I noticed that you do in your work is you're looking for those opportunities and you're looking for those positives or those things that we might be able to build on as we move further into the future. So are there other ways in which you think we might move beyond where we're at at the moment in ways that are either exciting or productive or positive or will have better outcomes for students and for schools going into the future? The whole debate around learning loss, I mean, it's unquestionably real, but it's, it, it takes us to almost a deficit place. And, and I'd like to think that during COVID, we learned a lot. We learned a lot. Um, we had to learn on our feet, but we learned, we learned a great deal. And young people learned a lot too. So I think going forward, one of my messages would be, and this is probably a bit controversial, but I'll say it anyway, and this is what I'm becoming more and more convinced of, is if we could see that the profession did such a great job during COVID, I mean, essentially, they, they allowed young people to be safe, to, to keep on learning, etc. If they did such a great job, why? Are they not at the heart of policy making? Because it seems to me that in achieving what they did through COVID and continuing to achieve what they did, 
Why are they not at the heart of policy making? Why are teachers not at the table? Why are young people not at the table? And, and I think that's the resounding reflection I have is they managed to create a way through the most disruptive time in our contemporary history. And yet they're not shaping the policy and the education policies of the future. And that's where I see the profession as being critically important. I think putting teachers at the heart of policy making and reform because they know best is the next stage, I think, in the future development of the profession. Often around the world, you're on these policy tables. So is it as simple as inviting teachers and students, young people to those tables? Is it that simple or are there other ways in which that might happen? In, inviting people to the table is, is, is probably the, the, first, the first stage in this. But I think listening to their voices authentically is the most important part. So it's not about representation. It's actually about listening to the voices of children, young people, the profession. You know, listen to the grassroots level, I think, before you, you grasp at policies that may not be suitable or appropriate for the context that you're in. And I'll give you one very concrete example. Um, right now, uh, in Scotland, there's a national discussion on the future of education. And I'm one of the facilitators with Professor Carol Campbell from OISE, who everybody will know, and she's the other facilitator. And it's a really bold and ambitious move, but I think other systems could learn from this. It's basically saying, if we look to our future as an education system, what sort of system do we want? And the answer is, well, we'll only know that if we take the views of children, young people and the profession. So this is a national discussion about the future of education that will shape the future of education in, say, two decades time. But children and young people are at the heart of that. It's ambitious because it could go horribly wrong. Not, nothing to do with Carol and myself, of course, but it could, could go wrong if it becomes just a talking shop with representation. So we, we've got to really listen to these different groups and listen to the young people who are not normally consulted in these sorts of discussions or conversations. Now, I think a lot of systems, there are other systems who've tried this. Iceland, Singapore are doing it at the moment. Uh, and New Zealand. And I think that's the way forward, actually, to have a really big conversation about what matters in education, what's worth fighting for out there. You know, as we go forward into the future, what do, what do children and young people want? Not in some sort of romanticized, yes, well, we'll just have no schools sort of way, but what really matters to them? What should be the future agenda of education? Should it be climate change? Should it be sustainability? Should it be young people's rights? We'll never know what those future policies should be unless we listen to children and young people right now. Mm, that student and child voice coming through. And there's when you talked about not just young people, but actually young people who perhaps aren't always invited to those tables, there's some challenges sometimes in often the easiest voices to get to a table are those who potentially are the most privileged or the most obvious or the most accessible, which means you're not necessarily getting those more difficult to access but really important voices as well. That, that, that's right. And, and that is the, the, the danger. It's, the, it's what I call the usual suspect syndrome. You know, the people that, that normally turn up to these things turn up and you get a rarefied view then of, of, of what's important. So I think what we're trying to do in Scotland through various charities, through various agencies, through various groups, is to reach out to these young people because we need to hear their voices so we get a really true picture of, of what really matters, not just for some children, 
but for all children in Scotland. And I think that's that's a real challenge. But at the same time, as I keep on saying on public platforms, I can't think of anything that's more right to do at this moment in time. You know, as we come through COVID, if we're out of COVID, as you say, it's, it's a debatable point. But I can't think of anything that's more important right now than listening to the voices of children and young people. Because we know from the international evidence that COVID has affected them deeply in terms of their well-being and mental health. So unless we listen to young people and try and break down some of the barriers that they're experiencing, then we carry on as if none of this ever happened. So I think now is the right time to focus on listening to young people and, and children. When I look around the world, I, I see sorry, I see systems grabbing at uh, the latest things, you know, the next shiny thing. What is this? The next thing to come over the horizon. And I think we need to pause and reflect and ask ourselves as a profession, what's the right thing to be doing? Let's forget the latest thing. What's the right thing to be doing for our children and young people in Australia right now? And let's focus on that. And, and really, I think, give credence to young people and, and, and their views because they are the future ultimately, not us. Doing the right thing, not the latest thing. I think that's that's core. And as I hear you speak, I'm uplifted by the fact that when I read your system recall book, I thought, you know, what what do we then do? Because if the system needs to be recalled and the system is is not serving us, uh, what do we do? But I think what you're talking about is real action that's happening in order to shift the system based on the important voices that need to be considered as we think about what education looks like in the future. Absolutely. I mean, COVID has shaken up all systems. So we can take that as an opportunity to reflect on our systems because it's, it's radically changed things, whether, whether we like it or not. And, and there is, I don't think there is any going back. I think that, that would be a huge mistake and that would be learning loss actually to go back to, you know, the norms and practices. It's, it's time for systems to look at themselves, but to look at themselves in an informed way. The profession is critically important in that process. You know, without the profession, we have no education. So, so let's give them the opportunity to also be part of that that national discussion or conversation, whichever you want to call it, because their voices matter too. They know their children best, they know their schools best, they know their communities best. So let's make sure that they are part of this uh, wider discussion. And if systems were sensible, I think they'd be following the pattern of Scotland and, and really asking themselves some very hard and maybe uncomfortable questions, not just about what works in a system, but what needs to change and why? Asking the uncomfortable questions. And I think sometimes there is that challenge of inviting people to the table who you think will challenge how you've done things. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together, Alma, and so I'm going to move us to the final five questions of the quickfire enlightening round. Yeah. The first of which is, what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you? Okay, well, what... People might not know about me is uh, in my early career, I was actually a, uh, a competitive runner and uh, competed in the European Championships and lastly did the London Marathon. So, I mean, my running days may be over, but I'm still very interested in, in sport. And uh, yeah, so pr- probably many people won't know that about me. Mm, do you still run in any capacity? No, I, I, I'm afraid I don't because, you know, age and, and all that has come come to me. But uh, yeah, I still, I still, I'm still very interested in, in athletics and the sort of sporting environment and 
No, I mean, I, I think sport is a, is, is a great leveller. And I think it, it really does remind us of the importance of not just competition, but collaboration too. And what about something that's currently on your desk? <laughs> in, in terms of what's on my desk at the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to finish an article which is about um, schools in the most challenging of circumstances. Because as you know, Deborah, that's been a passion of mine as well. Uh, how do we how do we support and help schools who are you know in high poverty areas in in any part of the world? So I'm trying to finish I'm trying to finish that at the moment, um, and I'm also reading a fascinating book uh, called Hot House Earth, which is about climate change, and it's probably one of the best books I've read on the subject, and it really does hit home, you know, what the future might be for young people and children. And, and, and why we need to really address climate change now uh, so their futures are going to be safe and secure. So, I mean, I, I, I read widely, but at the moment, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm focusing on trying to finish a piece of writing, which you probably uh, know only too well. Yes, the torturous end game <laughs> that comes just after the torturous middle game. Yes. <laughs> uh, what about someone who inspires you in the work that you do? Some, someone or, or something. Either way, someone or something that inspires you in the work that you do. I mean, you're someone who people look to for, I think, expertise and inspiration, but who is it that maybe you look to in your work? It would be so easy to say, well, it's this individual. But I, but actually what inspires me in my work and what, what keeps me going is, I, I think it's the profession. I mean, a, a long time ago, Deborah, I was asked a very simple question when I became a professor, um, and that's what sort of professor do you want to be? And I was largely alarmed by that question because I, I, I didn't know. I, I wanted to give some sort of profound and eloquent answer, but I thought about that. And the response I gave at the time, which is almost 30 years ago now, and I'm hope I, I still stand true to that. I said, I'd like to be a teacher's professor. And, and what I meant by that was, I'd like to connect with the profession in a way that is, is genuine, authentic, but actually useful. So what inspires me in my work as I, continue to go forward is the profession. And that sounds a bit corny, but it's, it's sort of true. Because, you know, only, only a few weeks ago, I was in a school in, in Scotland and, you know, it's, it's just remarkable what, what teachers and school leaders do. And we ignore that at our peril. So my short answer to you is, it's the profession that inspires me and continues to inspire me. And so that's been an anchor in this conversation, but in your work that you deeply believe in the capacity of teachers and in the work that they do and in wanting to support them. And have you come back to that intentionally in your mind, do you think, over time, that intention at the start to be the teacher's professor? I think that's that's sort of, since the day I said that, that's sort of been a true north for me in the sense that I've always checked my work and my interests in relation to the profession and, and what I can add and, and, and recognising, of course, that, you know, what I can add as a researcher is 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 incremental and, and not as great as, as perhaps what teachers do every day in, in schools. Yeah, I, I, I think my if you look at my work, it's largely been around leadership, teacher leadership, professional learning. So I've, I've stayed very close to the profession, I'd hope I say anyway, and, and reflected the view that, you know, working with and for the profession is, is actually quite a privilege. How about one thing that you have coming up that you're excited about? Well, I've already, I've already talked about the national discussion in, in Scotland, and in a way, I'm really excited about that. 
and slightly daunted by it as well because a it's huge but b i i don't think anything like this has happened before certainly in the context of of, of the united kingdom and it has happened in other countries but I'm, I'm excited by it because it could be a movement it could be a way of getting young people children and the professional voice into policy making and making that not an exception but a routine so i think this is exciting because it's breaking new ground in terms of the way we engage with the wider constituencies and talk about what matters to them in terms of education so listening to various voices as we, ha as we have already um, has been illuminating and, and quite challenging and at times quite uncomfortable but at the same time it seems to me to be a sort of social movement that really could radically alter the way we think about reform and policy change in education. That sounds really exciting and yet the pragmatist in me is wondering, you work at these sort of policy tables and I'm, I guess I watch the short-term cycle of politicians where they make promises about education and then two and a half years later they make another promise and someone else is in, they throw out the old promises. How do we make sure that, you know, these kinds of amazing consultation or ways in which we might be, you know, shaping the future of education how does that rubber actually hit the road? How do we um, make sure that it goes from this into something meaningful that will be sustained by governments over time rather than, yeah, that was a nice thing that we did, the last people did? Or Yeah, and you're absolutely right. You know, the, the worst thing that could happen is this is just an empty discussion and nothing happens as a result of it and, and the process itself is more important than the output. And, and one of the ways that Carol and I have thought about this and in a sense imposed this on the conversation or discussion is through a call to action. So the outcome from the national discussion in Scotland, and it's it's very clear in, in, in what's been written about it so far, um, is that there will be a call to action which will have short, medium-term and long-term priorities for the future of education in Scotland. So in a sense, that holds to account the views and the voices that we've heard and are hearing in the next you know, few weeks um, until December. In this, in this broad discussion, what happens as a result of it will be a call to action. So things will change, but let me be clear, it's not throwing everything up in the air and saying, right, everything's going to change because that wouldn't help either. It's, it's a process of asking people what matters most right now in education and what works. So let's keep what works. Let's not throw out what works. Let's actually expand what works. But it's also recognising that there are things that probably need to change, but let's do them in an informed way. Let's do, a, do them from the inside, not from the outside. So I think, you know, you've heard me talk about PISA before, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan. And, and I think one of the things that's happened with PISA is it's, it's distorted policymaking. And suddenly we have to be like Finland or we have to be like Singapore. I, I want Australia to be like Australia. You know, there's something unique about the Australian education systems. There's something really valuable that you just need to keep because that's culturally very important to you. And only you can decide on that. So I think a call to action means that the discussion will lead to some informed policymaking that people in the system will recognise and respect because they've been part of the discussion around that particular move forward. Sounds like really exciting work.
it is it is i think i, I think it's really exciting work and i just hope other systems take note uh, and be brave enough to do the same thing and so my final question is that if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with that's an overriding view that I have, and particularly in light of the work that I'm currently involved in, is that education is everyone's business. That it, it isn't the preserve just of the profession, because it's much bigger than, than that. But what we need to recognise, and this is, this is, I guess, at the heart of everything I do, that the profession is fundamentally important in the future of any education system. So it's well-being, it's remuneration, its respect, its recognition is of paramount importance. There is no future education without the profession. So let's value the profession in every way we possibly can, because ultimately teachers and school leaders on a daily basis make the difference to the lives and life chances of young people. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elma, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.